0: You're listening to The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and it's narrated by Aishwarya. Chapter 2 About halfway between West Egg and New York, the motor road hazardily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile so as to shrink away from a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm, where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and gorstic garden, where ashes take the form of houses and chimneys and rising smoke and finally with the transient effort of grey ash men, who always dimly walk and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally, a line of grey cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a gashly creak and comes to rest and immediately the ash-grey men swarm up with leaden spades and stir up an impenetrable cloud which screens their obscure operation from your sight. But above the grey land and the spasm of bleak dust which drift endlessly over it, you perceive after a moment the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg are blue and gigantic, their retinas are open one yard they look out of no face, but instead from a pair of enormous yellow spectacles which passes over a non-existent nose. Evidently, some wild whack of an oculus set them there to fatten his practice in the borough of queens and then snag down himself into an eternal blindness, or oh, forget them and move on again. But his eyes dimmed a little by many painless days under sun and rain brood over the solemn dumping ground. The valley of ashes is bounded on one side by a small foul river and when the drawbridge is up to let barrage through, the passenger on waiting trains can stare at the dismal scene for long as a half of hour. There is always a halt there of at least a minute and it was because of this that I first met Tom Buckanan's mistress. The fact that he had one was insisted upon whether he was known his acquaintances resented the fact that he turned up in a popular cafe with her and leaving her at a table and sauntered about chatting with whomever he knew though i was curious to see her i had no desire to meet her but i did i went up to new york with tom on a train one afternoon and when we stood by an ash heaps he jumped to his feet and taking hold of my elbow, literally forced me from the car. We are getting off, he insisted. I want you to meet my girl. I think he tanned upon a good deal at luncheon and his determination to have my company bordered on violence. The supercilious assumption was that on Sunday afternoon, I had nothing better to do. I followed him over a low whitewashed railroad fence and we walked back a hundred yards along the road under Dr. Eckelberg's persistent stare. The only building in sight was a small block of yellow brick sitting on the edges of wasteland, a sort of compact main street, ministering to it and contiguous to absolute nothing. One of the three shops it contained was for rent, and another was all-night restaurant approached by a trail of ashes. The third was garage repairs. George B. Wilson car brought, and it was sold, and I followed Tom inside. The interior was unprosperous and bare. The only car visible was the dust-covered wreck of Ford, which crouched in a dim corner. It had occurred to me that this shadow of Gorage must be blind, and scumptous and romantic apartments were concealed overhead, when the prosperous himself appeared in the door of an office, wiping his hands on a piece of waste. He was blond, spiritless man, anemic and faintly handsome. When he saw up, a damn glimpse of hope sprang into his light blue eyes. Hello, Wilson, said Tom, slapping him jovially on the shoulder. How is business? I can't complain, answered Wilson unconvincingly. We are going to sell me the car. Next week... I've got my man working on it now. Works pretty slow, don't he? No, he doesn't, said Tom coldly, and if you feel the way about it, maybe I'd better sell it to somewhere else after all. I don't mean that, explained Wilson quickly. I just meant-his voice faded off, and Tom glanced impatiently around the garage. Then I heard footsteps on the stairs, and in a moment the thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from an office door. She was in the middle thirties and faintly stout, but she carried her flesh sensibly as some women can. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue crepe de chine, contained no facet or a gleam of beauty, but there was an immediate perceptible vitality about her as if her nerves of the body were continuously smoldering. She smiled slowly and, walking through her husband, as if he were a ghost, shook hand with Tom, looking him flush into the eyes. Then she wet her lips and, without turning around, spoke to her husband in a soft, chorus voice. Get some chairs, so somebody can sit down. "Oh, sure," agreed Wilson hurriedly and went towards a little office, mingling immediately with the cement colour of the walls. The white ashes dust veiled his dark suit and his pale hair as it veiled everything in the visinet except his wife, who moved close to Tom. I want to see you, said Tom intently. Get out on the next train. All right, I'll meet you by the newsstand on the lower level. She nodded and moved away from him, just as a George Wilson emerged from two chairs from his office door. We waited for her down the road and out of sight. It was a few days before the 4th of July, and a grey and scrambly Italian child was setting torpedoes in a row along the railroad track. "'Terrible place, isn't it?' said Tom, exchanging a frown with Dr. Eckelberg. "'It's awful. It does her good to get away. "'Doesn't her husband object? You mean Wilson?' He thinks she goes to see her sister in New York. He's so dumb. He doesn't know he's alive. So Tom Buchanan and his girl and I went up together to New York or not quite together, for Mrs. Wilson sat discreetly in another car. Tom deferred that much to the sensibility of those East Eagers who might be on the train. She had changed her dress to a brown figure muslin which stretched tight over her rather wide hips as Tom helped her to the platform in the New York. At the newsstand, she bought a copy of Tom Tattle and a moving picture magazine and in the station drugstore, some cold cream and a small flash of perfume. Upstairs, in the solemn echoing drive, she let four taxi drivers drive away before she selected a new one, lavender-colored with gray upholder. And in his, we slid over from the massive station into a glowing sunshine. But immediately, she turned sharply from the window and leaning forward, taped on the front glass. I want to get one of those dogs, she said earnestly. I want to get one for the apartment. They are nice to have a dog. We backed up to a great old man who bore an absurd resemblance to John D. Rockefeller. In a basket swung from his neck, "'covered a dozen very recent puppies of an indeterminate breed. "'What kind are they?' asked Mrs. William eagerly as he came to the taxi window. "'All kinds, ma'am. What kind do you want, lady?' "'I'd like to get one of those polis dog. I don't suppose you got that kind?' The man peered doubtfully into the basket, plunged his hand and drew one up wringingly by the back of the neck." That's no polis dog, said Tom. No, it's not exactly a polis dog, said the man with the disappointment in his voice. It's more of a Airedale." He passed his hand over a brown rash wreck of a back. Look at that coat. What coat? That's a dog. That'll never bother you with catching a colt. I think it's cute, said Mrs. William enthusiastically. How much is it? That dog. He looked at it admiringly. That dog will cost you ten dollars. The Airedale, undoubtedly there was an Airedale concert in it somewhere, thought its feet were strangling white-changed hands and settled down it into Mrs. Wilson's lap, where she folded the waterproof coat with a rapture. Is it a boy or a girl? She asked it That dog? That dog is a boy, ma'am. It's a bitch, said Tom decisively. Here's your money. Go and buy ten more dogs with it. We drove over to Fifth Avenue, warm and soft, almost pastoral on the summer Sunday afternoon. I wouldn't have been surprised to see a great flock of white sheep turn the corner. Hold on, I said. I have to leave you here. No, you don't, interposed Tom quickly. Miral will be hurt if you don't come to us apartment. Won't you, Miral? Come on, she urged. I'll telephone my sister Catherine. She's said to be very beautiful by people who ought to know. Well, I'd like to, but... We went on cutting back again over a park towards a West Hundred. At 158th Street, the cab stopped at one slice in a long white cake of apartment houses. Throwing a regal homecoming glance around the neighborhood, Mrs. Wilson gathered up her dog and her other purchases and went hauntingly into it. I'm going to have the Mickey's come up, she announced as if she rose in the elevator. And of course, I got to call my sister too. The apartment was on the top floor, a small living room, a small dining room, a small bedroom and a bath. The living room was crowded to the doors with a set of tape-stripped furniture entirely too large for it so that to move about was to stumble continually over a scene of ladies swinging in the garden of Versailles. The only picture was an over-enlarged photograph, apparently a hen sitting on a bird lock. Looked at from a distance, however, the hen resolved itself into a bonnet and the countenance of a stout old lady beamed down into the room. Several old copies of Tom Taddle lay on the table together with a coffee of Simon called Peter in some of the small scandal magazine of Broadway. Mrs. Wilson was first concerned with the dog. A reluctant elevator boy went for a box full of straw and some milk, to which added on his own initiative of a tin of a large hot dog biscuit and one of those which was composed appentantly in the saucer of milk all afternoon. Meanwhile, Tom brought out a bottle of whiskey from a locked bureau door. I have been drunk just twice in my life and the second time was that afternoon so everything that happened has a dim hazy cast over it although until after eight o'clock the apartment was full of cheerful sun sitting on tom's lap mrs wilson called up several people on the telephone then there was no cigarettes and i went out to buy some at the drugstore on the corner when i came back They had both disappeared. So, I sat down discreetly in the living room and read a chapter of Simon called Peter. Either it was terrible stuff or the whiskey distorted thing, because it didn't make any sense to me. Just as Tom and Mirrell, after the first drink, Mrs. Wilson and I called each other by our first name. Just as Tom and Merrill reappeared, company commenced to arrive at the apartment door. Their sister Catherine was a slender, worldly girl of about 30 with a solid sticky bob of red hair and a complexion powdered milky white. Her eyebrows had been plucked and then drawn on again at a more rankled angle. But the effort of nature towards a restoration of oil alignment gave a blurred air to her face. When she moved about there, there was an incident clicking at innumerable pottery bracelet jingling up and down about her arms. She came in with such a prosperity haste and looked around so possessively at the furniture that I wondered if she lived here. But when I asked her, she laughed immoderately, repeating my question aloud and told me she lived with a girlfriend at a hotel. Mr. Mackie was a pale, feminine man from the fat below. He had just shaved. For there was a white spot on lather on his cheekbone and he was most respectful in his greeting to everyone in the room. He informed me that he was in an artistic game and I gathered later that he was a photographer and had made the dim enlargement of Mrs. Wilson's mother with Howard like an echoplastum on the wall. His wife was shrill, languid, handsome and horrible. She told me with a pride that her husband had photographed her 127 times since they have been married. Mrs. Wilson had changed her costume some time before and was now at trade in an elaborate afternoon dress of cream-coloured chiffon which gave out a continual rustle as she swept about the room. With the influence of the dress, her personality has also undergone a change. The intense vitality that had been so remarkable in the garage was converted into impressive haunter. Her laughter, her gesture, her assertion become more violently affected moment by moment. And as she expanding the room grew smaller around her until she seemed to be revolving on a noisy creaking pivot through the smoky air. My dear, she told her sister in a high mincing shout, most of these fellas will cheat you every time. All they think of is money. I had a woman up here last week to look at my feet, and when she gave me the bill, you'd have thought she had my appendicitis out. What was the name of the woman? asked Mrs. Mackey. Mrs. Ecklehart. She goes around looking at people's feet in her own house. I like your dress, remarked Mrs. Mackey. I think it's adorable. Mrs. Wilson rejected the compliment by raising her eyebrow in disdain. "'It's just a crazy old thing,' she said. "'I just slip it on, sometimes, when I don't care what I look like. "'But it looks wonderful on you. "'If you know what I mean,' pursued Mrs. McKee. "'If Chester could only get you in that pose, "'I think he could make something out of it.'" We all looked in silent at Mrs. Wilson who removed a strand of hair from all over her eyes and looked back at us with a brilliant smile. Mr. McKee regarded her intently with his head on one side and then moved his hand back and forth slowly in front of his face. I should have changed the light, he said after a moment. I'd like to bring out the modelling of the feature and I'd like to try to get hold of all the back hair. I wouldn't think of changing the light, cries Mrs. McKay. I think it's. Her husband said, Shh, and we all looked at the subject again, whereupon Tom Buchanan yawned audibly and got to his feet. You, Mackie have something to drink, he said. Get some more ice and mineral water, Meryl before everybody goes to sleep. I told that boy about the ice. Merrill raised her eyebrow in despair, at the shiftless of the lower orders. These people? You have to keep after them all the time. She looked at me and laughed pointlessly. Then she flounced over to the dog, kissed it with the ecstasy and swept it into the kitchen, implying that a dozen chefs awaited her orders there. I've done some nice thing out on a long island, asserted Mrs. Mackey. Tom looked at him blankly. Two of them were had framed downstairs. Two what? demanded Tom. Two studies. One of them I called Montic Point the Gulls, and the other I call Montic Point the Sea. The sister Catherine sat down beside me on the couch. Do you live down on Long Island too? she inquired. I live at West Egg. Really? I was down there at a party about a month ago. At a man named Gatsby, do you know him? I live next door to him. Well, they say he's a nephew or a cousin of Kaiser William. That's where all his money come from. Oh, really? She nodded. I'm scared of him. I hate to have him get anything on me. This absorbing information about my neighbor was interrupted by Mrs. Mackey's pointing suddenly at Catherine. Chester, I think you could do something with her. She broke out. But Mr. Mackey only nodded in a bored way and turned his attention to Tom. I'd like to do more work on Long Island, if I could get the entry. All I ask is that they should give me a start. Ask Merrill, said Tom, breaking into a short shout of laughter as Mrs. Wilson entered with a tray. She'll give you a letter of introduction, won't you, Merrill? Do what? she asked and she was startled. You'll give McKay a letter of introduction to your husband so he can do some studies on him. His lips moved silently for a moment as he invented George B. Wilson at the gasoline pump or something like that. Catherine leaned close to me and whispered in my ears. Neither of them can stand the person they're married to, can't they? Can't stand them. She looked at Merrill and then at Tom. What I said is, why go on living with them if they can't stand them? If I was them, I'll get a divorce and get married to each other right away. Doesn't she like Wilson either? The answer to this was unexpected. It came from Meryl, who had overheard the question, and it was violent and obscen. You see, cried Catherine triumphantly. She lowered her voice again. It's really his wife... That's keeping them apart. She's a Catholic and they don't believe in divorce. Daisy was not a Catholic and I was little shocked at the elaboration of the lie. When they don't get married, continued Catherine, they're going west to live for a while until it bores over. It'd be more discreet to go to Europe. Oh, do you like Europe? She exclaimed surprisingly. I just go back from Monte Claro. Oh, Really? Just last year, I went over there with another girl. Stay long? No, we just went to Monte Carlo and back. We went by a way of marshalls We had over $1200 when we started. But we got guiped all over it, all within two days in a private room. We had an awful time getting back. I can tell you. Oh God, how I hated that town. The late afternoon, Sky bloomed in the window for a moment like the blue honey of a Mediterranean. Then the shrill voice of Mrs. Mackie called me back into the room. I almost made a mistake too, she declared vigorously. I almost married a little Kiki who had been after me for years. I knew he was below me. Everybody kept saying to me, Lucille, that man's way below you. But if I hadn't met Chester... He would have definitely got me for sure. Yes, but listen, said Meryl Wilson, nodding her head up and down. At least you didn't marry him, right? I know I didn't. Well, I married him, said Meryl, ambitiously. And that's the difference between your case and mine. Why did you, Meryl? demanded Catherine. Nobody forced you to. Meryl considered. I married him because I thought He was a gentleman, she said finally. I thought he knew something about breeding, but he wasn't fit to lick my shoe. You were crazy about him for a while, said Catherine. Crazy about him? Cried Merrill incredulously. Who said I was crazy about him? I never was any more crazy about him than I was about the man there. She pointed suddenly at me and everyone looked at me accusingly. I tried to show by my expression that I expected no affection. The only crazy I was is when I married him. I knew right away I made a mistake. He borrowed somebody's best suit to get married in and never even told me about it. And the man came after it one day when he was out. Oh, is that your suit? I said. This is the first I ever heard about it. But I gave it to him, and then I lay down and cried to beat the band all the afternoon. She really ought to get away from him, resumed Catherine to me. They've been living over the garage for eleven years, and Tom's the first sweetie she ever had. The bottle of whiskey, a second one, was now in constant demand by all present, expecting Catherine, who felt just as good on nothing at all. Tom rang for the janitor and sent him for some celebrated sandwiches, which were a complete supper in themselves. I wanted to get out and walk eastward towards the park through the soft twilight, but each time I tried to go, I became entangled in some wild, strighted argument which pulled me back as if with ropes into my chairs. Yet, high over the city, a line of yellow windows must be contributed to their shape of human secrecy, to the casual watcher in the darkening street, and I saw him too, looking up and wondering. I was within and without, simultaneously enchant and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. Meryl pulled her chair closer to me and suddenly her warm breath poured over me the story of her first meeting with Tom. It was on the top of a little seat facing each other that are always last one left on the train. I was going up to New York to see my sister and spend the night. He had on a dress suit and patent leather shoes and I couldn't keep my eyes off him. But every time he looked at me, I had to pretend to be looking at the advertisement over his head. When we came into the station, he was next to me and his white-shirt friend pressed against my arm, and so I told him I had to call a policeman, but he knew I lied. I was so excited that when I got into a taxi with him, I didn't hardly know I was getting into a subway train. All I kept thinking about over and over was, you can't live forever, you can't live forever. She turned to Mrs. McKee, and the room rang full of her artificial laughter. My dear, she cried, I'm going to give you this dress as soon as I'm through with it. I've got to get another one tomorrow. I'm going to make a list of all the things I've got to get. A massage and a wave and a collar for the dog and one of those cute little trays where you touch a spring and a breath with a black silk bow for mother's grave that last all summer. I got to write down a list, so I won't forget all the things I got to do. It was nine o'clock, almost immediately afterward, I looked at my watch and I found it was ten. Mr. McKee was asleep on a chair with his fist clenched in his lap, like a photograph of a man of action. Taking out my handkerchief, I wiped from his cheek the spot of dry lather that has worried me all the afternoon. The little dog was sitting on the table, looking with blind eyes through the smoke, and from the time to time, groaning faintly. People disappeared, reappeared, made plans to grow somewhere, and then lost each other, searched for each other, found each other a few feet away. Sometime towards midnight, Tom buckana and Mrs. William stood face-to-face discussing in impassionate voices whether Mrs. Wilson had a right to mention Daisy's name. Daisy, 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 shouted Mrs. Wilson. I'll say it whenever I want to. Daisy. Making a short, deft moment, Tom Buckner broke her nose with his open hand. Then there were bloody towels upon a bathroom floor and women's voices scolding and a high over a confusion, a long broken wail of pain. Mr. Mackey awoke from his doze and started in a daze towards the door. When he had gone halfway, he returned around and started a scene, his wife and Catherine scolding and consoling as they stumble here and there among the crowd. The furniture with an article of eight and the despairing figure on the couch bleeding fluently and trying to spread a copy of town tattle over the tapestry scene of Versailles. Then Mr. McKee turned and continued on out the door. Taking my hat from a chadron, I followed. Come to lunch some day, he suggested, as we groaned down in the elevator. Where? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator boy. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I did not know I was touching it. All right, I agreed. I'll be glad to. I was standing beside his bed and he was sitting up between the sheet, clad in his underwear with a great portfolio in his hand. Beauty and the Beast. Loneliness. Old grocery horse. Brook and bridge. Then... I was lying half asleep in the cold lower level of the Pennsylvania station, starting at the morning tribune and waiting for the four o'clock train.